Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Ruth, chapter 3. We've been studying the book of Ruth, and last Sunday we looked at two legal concepts in the Mosaic Law, which set the background to the rest of the story that is found in this book. The first is the Leverate marriage. This is a marriage in which an in-law is involved. If a man dies without children, the name of the man must be perpetuated through the widow's marriage to an in-law, another man. And that way she can have children for her dead husband and can, tarry, and can continue his name, carry it on. There's been a great deal written about this because there's been a lot of confusion. We find it mentioned three places in the Old Testament. And in each place, it's different. And so it's not as though we have a consistent pattern that is set down. It's mentioned in Genesis 38, it's mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy, and then here in the book of Ruth. We talked about that last week. The second legal concept is the kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew word is goel, G-O-E-L. And it refers to a near kinsman who acts as a redeemer. A redeemer either of persons or of property. But its root meaning is to protect. We saw last Sunday that there are at least four functions of this goel, of this kinsman redeemer. The first is to redeem property that has been lost. If somebody uh, goes broke and they sell property, that which was given to their ancestors by God when the land was divided, then a kinsman redeemer is in fact to buy that land back so that the land will stay in the family. Secondly, the goel is to redeem a person. Let's say someone goes broke and they sell themselves into slavery. Well, this kinsman redeemer can, in fact, buy him out of slavery and pay off his debts. It really emphasizes the fact that there is a collective responsibility in the family to care for one another, particularly for those who are weak or those who are oppressed. And let's, if you just think about it, in any family, there are certain people who just aren't good with money, you know, and so those who are better with money should in fact be there to help them. Um, now, the kind of help they're supposed to provide is spelled out in the law, but I think in our day might be a bit different. But those who are weaker in certain areas are to be protected by those who are stronger. The third thing we saw is that the goel is to be the revenger or the avenger of blood. This is perhaps the most solemn responsibility that if someone is in fact murdered, it is his responsibility, the family's collective responsibility, to get justice. And then the last is the trustee. The goal is a trustee. Let's say that somebody owes me money, but before they can pay it back, I die. Well, the money's still to be paid back, and it is to be paid back to the kinsman redeemer. One of the questions that may come up is, why are these laws in Scripture? Or we might ask, why... Why are they there in the first place? The idea of marrying one's sister-in-law or not marrying her, simply having children by her, may strike us in our time and place as rather bizarre. Uh, the idea of being financially responsible for a relative may strike us as dangerous. Uh, it used to be that people would put ads in the classified ads with statements like, I am no longer responsible for the debts of... And then they would say who it was. Or, I will not be responsible for no debts but my own. Or, I'm not responsible for any debts but my own. 
But the role of the goel points in the opposite direction, in which he helps a relative who is in financial distress. But again, why these laws? I suggested to you last week that in part they reflect the character of God. The kinsman redeemer, I think that's the easier one to see. Redemption is a key component in our relationship with God. It begins with redemption. Because he loves us, he redeems us, we are now his people. It, is, it was a costly proposition. It cost the life of his son. And one might argue that it was a dangerous proposition because even those whom God has redeemed don't always act the way that they should. But still, I think the redemption thing is more accessible to us. But what about the levirate marriage? Here, I think what we find is a concern for those who are in need. Rather than abandoning the widow, there is provision that is made for her. And this comes at cost as well. And we see that Onan in Genesis 38 is unwilling to pay the cost. And we will see the Lord willing next Sunday in chapter 4, the nearer relative to Ruth is unwilling to pay the cost. But in fact, Boaz will. Boaz is one who is willing to be the kinsman redeemer. And he is the one who is willing to marry Ruth in a liberate marriage. We will see this, Lord willing, next Sunday. But today we come to chapter 3, which one commentator has entitled The Proposal Itself. It parallels chapter 2, I think, rather closely. We have a scene at the beginning with Naomi and Ruth having a dialogue. And at the end, there's a dialogue as well. But in between is the action with Boaz. We will see that in a bit. Because we don't Hebrew, do Hebrew, we might be at a loss, but much of the vocabulary in chapter 2 is repeated in chapter 3. It is as though the person writing chapter 3 wants to make sure we know that there is a very close connection with the previous chapter. So, this chapter begins with Naomi's plan. If you look at the first five verses here in Ruth chapter 3. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not try to find a home for you, where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. I said that chapter 2 and 3 are connected, and yet there is a difference right at the beginning, because in chapter 2, Ruth is the one who takes initiative. She tells Naomi, I'm going to go out and glean. Here in chapter 3, it is Naomi who takes initiative, and she says, this is the plan, this is what you should do. In some ways, her desire reflects what we saw in chapter 1, that she wanted them to have a husband. In chapter 1, verse 9, May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And here she said, My daughter, shall I not find a home for you where you will be well provided for? The language well provided for is used or translated other ways in other places in the Old Testament. It refers to bridal happiness. It refers to security, to long life material prosperity, and many children. In chapter 1, when Naomi wished that they could have a husband, it seemed, in fact, impossible. 
She said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, and even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? So in chapter 1, this seems impossible. But now in chapter 3, it does in fact seem possible because of Boaz. Is not Boaz a kinsman of ours? We saw in the story of Tamar in Genesis 38 that her father-in-law made the arrangements. Ur died, so he said to Onan, you're supposed to go in. And Onan was killed. And so he said, you wait, go home to your dad. And then when Sheila grows up, then in fact, uh, he will marry you. Here, Naomi, as the mother-in-law, takes the initiative. She takes on the responsibility to make the arrangements for a marriage. After all, Boaz is our kinsman, she put it. He is related to Naomi through her dead husband, her late husband, Elimelech who was the father of Malon, who was Ruth's husband. So he is related to them. You see, it would be one thing for Ruth to endure widowhood all through Naomi's lifetime. But what happens when Naomi dies? Ruth is not Jewish. We're reminded time and time again she is a Moabitess. She has left her parents. She has left her homeland. Now she is a stranger. What will happen to her? So Naomi comes up with a plan. She treats Ruth as family, because she is in fact family. My daughter, she says. And she comes up with a plan. The location is the threshing floor. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. In ancient agricultural practice, winnowing was a festive and joyous climax of, in fact, the whole agricultural uh, calendar. First was the harvesting, where they would cut the grain. Second, you bundle it up. The third is you would carry it to the threshing floor. Then threshing is the fourth step. And finally is the winnowing. Threshing is when a cart or oxen or some type of stone is run over the grain to remove the husk from the kernel itself. Winnowing is when you would take a shovel or a pitchfork and throw it up into the air. And you have to be at the right location where a breeze would come and blow the chaff away. And then what you're left with would be the grain itself. Based on this practice, Naomi has formulated a plan. First are preparations. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Rather than rushing off to the threshing floor and confronting Boaz and saying, listen, you are a kinsman, you need to marry me, there's things she needs to do. She needs to prepare herself. She's to make herself attractive, She is to dress up, but more than that, she is to dress as a bride. The language is that of a bride. It's similar to what we hear in the book of Ezekiel. I bathed you with water and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. More on this in a bit. Yet for all the preparations, she is to prepare herself, beautify herself if you wish, there is also to be discretion and prudence. So she is to go to the threshing floor. Don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And then when you see that he goes someplace on the threshing floor to sleep, make sure you know where that is. And then at an appropriate time, you go and uncover his feet, lay yourself at his feet, and he will tell you what to do. 
I don't know about you, but I find this a bit disturbing. But Naomi leaves nothing to chance. She covers all the bases, if you wish. And I think there's something to be learned here for the use of human ingenuity. She just doesn't say, go and tell him you guys need to get married. He's a kinsman redeemer. She, in fact, comes up with a rather ingenious plan. Um, and at this point of the story, we have a strong sense for that. For all three people, in the, uh, the main characters, for Naomi, for Ruth, and Boaz, they have a real strong sense that God is in control. So we shouldn't see Naomi as someone who is conniving, who is trying to be sneaky about things. She has come up with an ingenious plan that she thinks will, in fact, result in Boaz marrying Ruth and the line of her husband would continue. All her planning means nothing if God does not allow it to happen, if God is not in control, if it isn't what he wants. So she gives her instructions. And the resolution is he will tell you what to do. Now stop and think a minute. Put yourself in Ruth's place and imagine your response. And I I don't mean to make light of this. It may sound that way. But just imagine that you're Ruth. And she gives you these instructions. I think my response would be, okay, let me get this straight, Mom. Okay. You want me to get all fixed up. You want me to beautify myself. And then you want me to go through the threshing floor where all these guys are hanging out. You want me to sneak around. You don't want Boaz to see me until he passes out from having a good time. Okay? Then you want me to sneak over in the middle of the night, uncover his feet and be at his feet. And then to top it off, if that weren't weird enough, then he's going to tell me what to do. Really? This, this is your great plan? Let me ask you, would you want your mother-in-law to pick out your next husband? Plus, as we will see, it is apparent that Boaz is older than Ruth. And we have no idea what he even looked like. Um, and yet, we, if you look at verse number six, so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. From what we can surmise, there are no questions, there are no objections, She did not ask for any reasons. We know that she is devoted to Naomi, her mother-in-law. We know nothing of her motives, nothing of her fears or expectations. We're told nothing of her faith in God to prosper her efforts. Would God bless the clever plan of Naomi, the matchmaker? We're simply told that Ruth did everything that her mother-in-law, not Naomi, by the way, It is Naomi, but it's not Naomi by name, that her mother-in-law told her to do. So now in verses 7 to 13, we have a conversation between Ruth and Boaz. The narrator gives us the report of what took place. Verse 7, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and laid down. Things went apparently as Naomi had predicted. Boaz had eaten and had something to drink. It was in good spirits. And he went down to the end of the grain pile and promptly went to sleep. And Ruth does as she was instructed. Quietly, 
she approached, she uncovered his feet, and then laid at his feet. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, if you look at verse number 8. And he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Imagine yourself in Boaz's place, waking up in the middle of the night, and you discover a woman at your feet. The ESV, the English Standard Version, has as the King James Version does, At midnight the man was startled and turned over, turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Who are you? he asked. Seems like an appropriate question. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Did you catch that? Did you catch there's something different in verse number 9? What did Naomi tell Ruth? He will tell you what to do, right? But in fact, it is Ruth who tells Boaz what to do. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And again, the passage from Ezekiel comes to mind. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and cover your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. This was the custom, and God uses that language of his relationship with Israel, that he covered Israel with the corner of his garment. This is what Ruth is asking Boaz to do. What, in fact, Ruth is doing is proposing to Boaz. She is saying, I want you to marry me. Put the corner of your garment over me. In many cultures, including that of the people of Israel, this was rather forward. But rather than being offended by her forwardness, Boaz is flattered, I think, and pleased by it. Verse number 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz declares her praiseworthy and blessed by God. This kindness is greater. What kindness is he referring to? Is it that she's willing to marry an old guy? Is that what this is about? I think it is her willingness to marry Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, to provide for Naomi. That is to say, if in fact Boaz will marry Ruth, then it will in fact provide Naomi, the land will come back, but she will have an heir. Her family line will not end. She's lost her husband, she's lost her two sons, she has no grandchildren, but she could, in fact, have one if Boaz and Ruth were to marry and have children. This is a greater kindness than what she showed earlier when she left her homeland out of devotion to Naomi. And the devotion is all the more impressive, Boaz says, because she has passed up other attractive options. The younger men whether rich or poor. There are at least three things here, three options. She could have picked somebody younger. She could have picked somebody who had money, married for money. Or she could have married someone who was poor, and we would guess if you marry someone who's poor, it must be because you love him, not because he has money. But Ruth does not choose any of these three options. Instead, she chooses family loyalty. And she chooses to sacrifice for the sake of her mother-in-law. One could make the case that Boaz was using hyperbole. Um, it's unlikely in that culture that she could have picked the man she wanted to marry. 
I mean, that's not usually the way that things work. Uh, particularly a widow, that she could go around town saying, I want to marry this guy or that guy. Um, but the point is, he's making that Ruth did not act from passion or from greed. She acted out of sacrifice. It is sacrificial love. She set aside personal preferences and chose a marriage of benefit to her family. And I think she is a model of selfless concern for others. So Boaz makes a pledge and a promise. Verse number 11. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. I've mentioned this before, but the most common commandment in the Bible is don't be afraid. And we hear it here. Don't be afraid. What would Ruth have to be afraid of? Really? What would she have to be afraid of? He could have rejected her. He could have scorned her. He could have exposed her to public ridicule. Here is this foreigner from another country coming in, sneaking in. She doesn't do it in the sight of all people. She sneaks in, and now she wants me to marry her. He very easily could have exposed her to ridicule. And we think of the story of Joseph and Mary, where Joseph chose not to do that to Mary. He tells her, don't be afraid. He reassures her. She may be a foreigner, he doesn't say that, but she is a woman of noble character, and all the people in town know that. Verse number 12. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. As one commentator put it, it's just when we begin to hear wedding bells, that Boaz and Ruth are going to get married, suddenly there's a kink. Uh, Boaz reveals an unexpected, disconcerting fact. Yes, her petition has a legitimate basis. Yes, he is a kinsman redeemer, but there is somebody who is closer in relationship than Boaz himself. By the way, just a parenthetical note. Um, I don't think I'm stretching too much here, but doesn't it seem to you that Boaz has actually thought about this before? Um... It's not as though in the middle of the night you're like, oh yeah, by the way, we have a relative who's closer. I mean, I think this is something he has thought about and now the opportunity has presented itself. itself. So there is a relative who is closer to Elimelech um, in terms of relation than is Boaz. And therefore, it was his responsibility to be the Goel. Now, from what we, we can, we can only speculate, okay? That's all we can do here. It seems that if you have a close relative, but this close relative says, no, I will not do that, then there is the second closest. And in this case, it would be Boaz. But we could guess that if the second one doesn't do it, then there's a third one, that there's sort of a hierarchy of relationship. There is someone who is closer to Elimelech than Boaz. But if he won't do it, then Boaz will in fact marry her. But... The law states that Boaz can't jump ahead in line. He may have a great affection for this woman, but the law is the law, and that they have to follow what happens. As an upright Israelite, Boaz bowed to the law and to custom, rather than to somehow come up with a scheme to get around it. Personal preference gave way to the prior rights of relatives, and this brings a certain sense of suspense to the story. The first being that 
when Ruth was at his feet and then he wakes up. But the second one is, will Boaz lose Ruth? Will she end up marrying somebody whose name we don't know at this point? Or will this work out? But it introduces, I think, the whole matter of providence. If Ruth and Boaz do, in fact, get married, the Lord will be certainly responsible for that because only he could overcome the obstacle that is in their path. So verse number 13, Boaz instructs Ruth, stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. He tells Ruth to stay there until morning. She shouldn't be out late at night. In the morning, he will find out if the kinsman redeemer closer to her will marry her or not. It's interesting, he doesn't use the word marry, by the way. He uses the word redeem. If the other kinsman will not redeem, then Boaz will do it as surely as the Lord lives. That is, Boaz subjects himself to divine punishment. If I don't keep my word as surely as the Lord lives, um, he in fact will do this. Just a side note, if you're taking notes, the two do not become engaged at this point. There's been some talk about that. They cannot become engaged because, in fact, there is someone closer in relationship. Okay. But Boaz, in fact, does make a promise to her that if the other relative will not redeem, then he, in fact, will marry her. Verses 14 and 15 Boaz does not send her away empty-handed. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Both are concerned that her presence, not that it should not be noticed, that it should not be known. So Ruth, for her part, gets up before anyone could recognize her. And Boaz, for his part, tells the other men at the threshing floor, Don't tell anybody. Don't let it be known that a woman was here. We could speculate as to why they're so careful, but I don't think it takes a lot of thinking. Um, Nothing wrong happened, but it certainly looks suspicious, doesn't it? I mean, you have two adult people, a male and a female, a man and a woman, and all of a sudden we see her slinking off as dawn breaks. Well, nothing, nothing bad has happened. But in fact, the repercussions could be catastrophic for both of them. Boaz is not sneaking around, okay? In some ways, Ruth is not as well, but he is careful for her reputation. Listen to verse number 15. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. He does not send her away empty-handed. He has made a promise. This is a token of the pledge that he has made to her. Six measures of barley. Again, we don't know ancient measurements. We we just don't know um, in terms of modern measurements. It has been suggested that six measures equals somewhere between 50 and 88 pounds of grain. Uh, It sounds like a lot, but consider that Boaz had to put it on her and that she'd been working in the fields for seven weeks. Uh, I think... If it's 50 pounds or more, I think Ruth, in fact, could have handled it. But in any case, she goes home to Naomi and Boaz goes to town. 
Question, why does he give her grain? What is its purpose? Verse 15 doesn't give us any clue. But verse 17 does. We'll skip ahead to verse 17, the second part. When Ruth tells Naomi that Boaz said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Two things stand out immediately. This isn't just a story about Ruth and Boaz. Okay? Naomi is very much in the mix here. There is the matter of the kinsman redeemer, not simply for Ruth, but for Naomi as well. And it is through Elimelech, her late husband, that this whole business is taking place. So Naomi is very much a part of this. And the second thing is, when Naomi came home to Bethlehem in chapter 1, she said, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So here we have Naomi who is, if you wish, empty-handed. And Boaz will not send Ruth to her mother empty-handed. Okay. His plan is not only to take care of Ruth, but of Naomi as well. Verses 16 and 17, Ruth reports to Naomi. When Naomi came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these, these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. I asked you earlier to put yourself in Ruth's place. Put yourself now in Naomi's place. Do you think she got much sleep that night? Or was she pacing? Was she wondering, what's going on? We came up with this plan. I wonder if it's working. I wonder if things had happened. Um, in any case, Naomi, uh, Ruth comes home and she wants to know what happened. And she tells, Ruth tells her everything that Boaz had said and now comes with a pledge that reverses her position. She's no longer empty-handed. But Boaz has sent grain home to her. Well, what's next? Verse 18, we need to wait some more. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. What Boaz will do next, the Lord willing, we will study next Sunday. But let's, let's ask ourselves. We've studied chapter 3 now. What are we to make of this passage? What does it have to teach us? What applications can we make? I want to start by saying we need to be really, really careful because this is one of those passages with, I think, in the hands of the wrong person, we can make the passage say anything that we want. We can say, well, according to Ruth 3, a woman is supposed to propose to a man because that's what Ruth does. Um, or, according to Ruth 3, a mother-in-law is the one who's supposed to pick the husband for her daughter-in-law if her son dies. Um, we need to be very careful when we make the application here. There's several things I would suggest to you for you to think about and work through. First of all, Ruth is motivated by love. Sacrificial love, not by passion and not by greed. It's Boaz who, mark, who remarks on this, that you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. They're rich, you're after their money. If they're poor, it must be love. In fact, Ruth has not done this. She has been motivated by sacrificial love for Naomi. I don't know, it may just be me, but I don't hear people talking about sacrifice or sacrificial love anymore, any sacrificial action at all. 
Just don't. I think during times of war, perhaps in the culture, people talk about that more. But lately, it seems that it all seems to be about ourselves. If there's a common piece of advice for people today, which tends to drive us nuts when we hear it, is follow your heart. Follow your heart. Well, what if my heart is less than it should be? Which is certainly the case. What if my heart is driven by passion? What if it is greed that motivates me? Well, I don't think follow your heart is good advice. What we find is that Ruth is guided by sacrificial love for Naomi. The second thing I want you to consider and to think about is the matter of family. If one is not careful, Ruth chapter 3 might be used to promote the supremacy of family. That anything and everything we do must be for the family, must be dictated by the family. I don't think so. We are, in fact, to honor our parents. They are the ones God used to give us life. They taught us, they fed us, they provided what we needed. But we find in the Gospels that there's something that supersedes our family, and that is following Jesus. Jesus says some very hard things in this regard in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These are not words we expect to hear from Jesus. We expect to hear about love. We don't expect to hear about hate. In Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let's let's be very personal. We have beautiful children in this congregation and the words of Jesus sound like a dagger in the heart. I remember when we went through Matthew in this particular passage that I reminded you of something from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar where uh, Brutus is trying to explain why he assassinated his close friend. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I love Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. I think the call of Jesus is not to abandon our family, but to realize there's something that supersedes it. And we learn something else, and that is that we have a new family. And it is to this new family that we are to demonstrate sacrificial love. The third and last thing that I'd have you think about is the law and love. There are some who see the Old Testament as characterized by law and the New Testament as characterized by love. That somehow the New Testament brings in this radical new idea, this radical new proclamation that you're supposed to love one another as though in the Old Testament this did not exist. I read this to you several Sundays ago from Matthew. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. There is no polarity between law and love that we might imagine. Old Testament, New Testament. 
that we don't want to be Old Testament people because there's no love there, that we'd rather be New Testament people. Not at all. And we see this particularly in the book of Ruth and we see it in the person of Boaz. He is a law-abiding person. He keeps Torah. If you remember in chapter 2, when he greets his workers, he greets them with grace. And when he speaks to Ruth, he does so with grace. For him, the law gives guidance. For living as a person within the covenant of the family of God, law is what gives him instruction. It is not a legal code. It isn't a book that he looks, has to look up what is the law in this particular matter. It is instruction from God. God's instructions on how we are supposed to live. And we see this in the story of Boaz and Ruth as the story unfolds. The law is guidance in how we are to love one another. If we focus on the law alone, apart from God's love and God's grace, then it simply turns into rules and regulations. It's legalism. It's moralism. And if you think about it, there are those who are rather upset that in our courts in this country that the Ten Commandments are taken down. They wish that the Ten Commandments would be put in public places. And I think I understand that argument. But apart from God's grace and God's love, they're just rules. They simply become legalism. If we focus on love alone, then we lose all the content of what it's supposed to mean. Love then can become a cover to mean just about anything. What feels good to me, what seems to be good to me, what I want to do, following my heart. It is, in fact, law and love that are to go together. And we see this in the person of Boaz. Boaz is willing to take the chance. He is willing to take the chance that he may lose Ruth. Because there is a relative who's more closely related. But God has given guidance, God has given instruction in his law. And Boaz is content to follow that. And as we will see, the Lord willing, next Sunday, it in fact works out as, as it should. Because God's law is not simply a bunch of rules and regulations. It is guidance, it is instruction. It tells us how we are to live as people of love. I hope you think about these things in the week to come. Let's pray together. Father, we tend to think in terms of extremes. We like to put things in opposition uh, to one another. Law and love. And we live in a time in which we are encouraged to follow our hearts. And the idea that there might be instructions, guidance, sort of rubs us the wrong way. I thank you for the example of Ruth, the example of Boaz, and Naomi and her faith in you. How that you would and you do take care of your people. I thank you for the time we could spend together today in worship. Hearing your word read and preached, singing together, giving praying and all that we've done. Pray that it's brought honor and glory to your name. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place today. Be with us in the coming days. May we remember one another in prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.